You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Kia and welcome to The Wire for Ramadan Friday. I'm your host Liam and I'll be taking you through The Wire for today, the 30th of September. Our producer David Williams is in the studio today. How are you going today, David? Kia ora, Liam. I'm going well. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming in. Coming up on the show today, I spoke to Jen Logie of the Green Party about her open letter to the Prime Minister to improve welfare support for parents of young children. I also had a chat with Anton Ashcroft from Divergent Thinking NZ about the struggle that neurodiverse students go through under schools. And finally, I had a corridor with Kelly Dombrowski from Massey University about how Christchurch has implemented community installations and arts events after the earthquakes. We also have a series of interviews from Jack Horsnell in last week's climate protests in Tamaki Makoto. He spoke to protesters about what they were calling for and why they believe that climate change is important. David, are you all good to let us know what you're talking about? Yep, I spoke to Paulina Stuckey at DOC regarding the Haast Tokoweka, um, regarding the fa- first Haast Tokoweka chick of the 2022-23 season. I also spoke to um, Pedro Melo regarding the upcoming Brazilian election. Sounds great. Hey, aha, Ofakara. We would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So get in touch. Took part who we might. You can text us on 5395 or why am I Give us a call on studio on 0938879. Also, after the show, go e wareware e ahi ana koto te fakarongo ki ene korodo ano he pakere roki roki maranga itepe tukutuku o rimanga poho mahiriki 95bfm idakatikom. You can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95bfm website 95bfm.com. Green Party MP Jan Logie has recently spearheaded an open letter to see welfare improved for parents of young children. Addressed to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and the Minister for Social Development, Carmel Cepoloni, the latter called for a one central family support credit instead of having multiple different kinds. Logie also calls for the Best Start credit that supports parents through weekly paid installments to be increased from one year of funds to three years of funds after the baby is born. The Best Start payment was introduced in 2018, giving families with under 12-month-olds $60 per week depending on their income, a number that the Greens are also calling to be increased. I spoke to Jen Logie to learn more, first asking her how parents were managing under the current cost of living crisis. So what we're hearing from families is that they're increasingly having to cut back on basic foods, um, looking to try and get more hours of work when they'd rather be at home with their families, that stress and worry about being able to pay the rent and also, you know, afford getting to work and getting to the places that they need and um, the cost of childcare as well. Just like a whole lot of pressure that's... um, you know, means that their quality of life and their ability to parent and um, thrive is really suffering. With this in mind, what is your open letter to the Prime Minister calling for? 
Um, so we're calling for the government to take this opportunity after having reviewed Working for Families to increase um, Working for Families payments, simplify it because there's a whole lot of different um, tax credits in there and we believe it could be just one or two um, and remove the discrimination against parents who aren't able to be in full-time work. Could just one tax credit lead to any inequities in the system? Um, the evidence we have at the moment, and it's been reinforced by the court, is that the current system is really inequitable and founded on discrimination against children whose parents are not able to be in full-time paid work. So this removes that inequity. Um, and what it will do is that the Working for Families um, it will help get more money to our families at a time where they really need it. So why is it important to let go of the $79,000 salary cutoff point for families to receive payments until their child is three? For the um, best start payment, mm. um, we're wanting to increase that, and you're right, remove that threshold and make it universal because the international evidence is overwhelming that um, universal payments for child benefits are the most effective way of ensuring that children get what they need and that parents can make that choice if it's right for their families to stay at home if their children need them rather than feeling that pressure to go back to work. And we have very low um, rates of paid parental leave in this country compared to many others. And Families are just feeling like they don't have that choice at the moment to be able to do what's best for their family. And we want to make sure that they get that choice because those first thousand days in a baby's life have lifelong consequences. And we want all of our children to have the best possible start. You mentioned that there are international examples that you're using to base this policy call on. Which countries are you specifically using as a model for the right way to approach child poverty right now? Well, actually, this is not specifically drawn on examples in other countries. We know that um, they, like countries, they've all got kind of different schemes. So this is being drawn from particularly work from Child Poverty Action Group, where they've been calling for the removal of... Um, the discrimination in the working for family system, and then um, looking at some of the other countries, um, and I'm not going to be able to recall them accurately off the top of my head, but um, that have those universal um, child benefits in those early years. Why should the number for people to receive the Best Start tax credit be cut at three and maybe not five when most kids are able to go to primary schooling? Yeah, it's based on that evidence of the importance of the first thousand days of a child's life. Um, and I, like I get the rationale of um, when children go back to school at five, but it's really about front-loading that support at the time where it makes the most difference. We are also just increasing the payments for working for families as well, um, which will go um beyond that time. Would this also help support people during those thousand days if their children and toddlers are going through any medical issues? Well, we believe, and this is part of the reason for it being uni the best start payment being universal and increasing working for families and making that more universal, is it will support families in the, you know, the range of challenges that they have 
and that more universal approach is the more effective way to get that, ensure that they get that support. However, the um, I think you also raised the point about the recent passing of the legislation to provide more cover through ACC um, for birth parents who experience injury during birth, and um, and that's a fundamental and incredibly important change for us as a society. Um, and um, we've been the Green Party has been very active in pushing um, for those law changes because the stories we've heard from families of just suffering and just extreme pain um, and discomfort and the impact that that's had on farmers' lives has been really profound and um, ignored for far too long. So this, we believe, would be a really important initiative alongside of that. How can middle-income families in particular be able to benefit from the abatement threshold of the family support credit being lowered? So what this will do is so it will raise the um, the income threshold where you can um, receive working for families because it starts cutting out um, at the moment from a just over 40,000, 42,700, and will raise um, the income you can earn to 49,000 before that starts being cut back um, by the government. And it will enable people to keep more of that money so it's a less of a kind of a steep cut-off once you start earning um, that money and there's more gradual support, which we believe is part of One of the things, and we do think there needs to be more support put in place, but that will help people transition into paid work when it's the right time for them and that they get to keep more of the the benefit of that work. Parties might argue that a better way to relieve stress is to impose some stronger tax relief. Do you think that this would be a good way to ease financial pressure on parents? We believe that working for families is a is a really useful tool as is our welfare system. But working for families, we can make sure that this supports parents who are full-time parenting as well as parents who are juggling paid work and parenting. Um, and it's more effective than the tax system because it still enables us as a country to have the collective resources to put into our health system and our education and to consider, you know, can we also be reducing the costs of childcare or making that free? And when you reduce the tax, give people tax cuts, um, you actually take away your ability to be able to offer other supports that are responsive to the needs of families. Really, the Green Party wants every single child in our country to have the best chance of thriving and that we know that um, their families having enough resources is essential in setting them off on a good path in life. And we really encourage the government to take this opportunity to reform working for families to help deliver that. Um, And that if people would like to sign our open letter um, to help make that happen, um, we can all be part of that solution. That was the Green Party's Jan Logie chatting about her open letter calling for reforms of support measures for parents of young children. We will be back after this quick break. What's a seven letter word for street fighter? No idea. 
Don't you know anything? I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... Spiral Live, followed by DJs Hudge and Grantis. And tomorrow, DJs Junior and TDK. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Project Reclaim is Motat's new spring school holiday experience. Cast as a time traveller from the distant future travelling back to the present day, kids can get stuck into a series of fun, sustainability-focused activities. Restoring a wasteland to a lush and thriving ecosystem, empowering Tamariki to look at what they can do now for a greener tomorrow. Project Reclaim, Kauanga, spring holiday experience at Motat. October 1st to the 16th. Find out more at motat.nz. Seabiscuit's a wanker. Black Beauty's been checked out since 96. Falap's dead and Australian. But there are still some equine chums who know how to show you a bloody good time. <laughs> Pony Ping Pong on 95BFM. Every Friday night, Matt and Aaron are here to blast open your weekend with a mix of mashdowns, candid convos, cheap shots and mystery celebrity nakedness. Pony Ping Pong. <laughs> Friday, 9 to 11 p.m., only on 95BFM. The first round of Brazilians pres- first round of Brazil's presidential election takes uh, place next Monday, New Zealand time. The two frontrunners will be for- former President Lula and controversial current president Jair Bolsonaro. There are worries that Bolsonaro will refuse to accept the results of the election if he loses. This could spill out into violence. I spoke to Brazilian New Zealander Pedro Melo about what could happen. Why is this election so important? Well, it's important because it could be a game change in Brazil, you know, a big one. 2018, Bolsonaro was elected, and since then, Brazil went downhill, you know. I'm talking about the Amazon, I'm talking about civil rights, I'm talking about the native people, I'm talking about the universities in Brazil. We have different from New Zealand, we have federal uh, universities in Brazil, and he's, he's, he's not sending money to them anymore. We have now 33 million people starving in Brazil due to a not-so-good economic political decisions. And he's running against Lula. Lula was a former president from 2002 to 2010. Brazil was doing great at that time. We were the fifth economy in the world. No employment. Country was doing really well. We, we need to change. Apart from that, Bolsonaro is a fascist, you know. He's on the wrong side of the history. He supported the military period in Brazil. He's, he also declared he approves torture. So there's a lot of things that need to be changed, and that's why it's so important, this election now. There are a lot of fears that Bolsonaro won't, won't accept the results of the election. How likely do you think that will be? Yeah, that, that could happen, especially because he we changed politics. You know, we, we we were back here in New Zealand. They were uh, restricted, and Bolsonaro allowed them. Like people can buy five guns or something like that. His supporters they act similar to Trump's supporters. He's challenging the electronic vote system we have in Brazil. He's declaring that he's not going to accept all the pools are fake. 
he's the number one and his supporters they might do something after the, the result so people are really concerned back in Brazil that something might happen that's why even people that did not support Lula they are supporting Lula they are against what might happen but we are not talking about corruption that we are talking about people with guns with wants to kill black people that want to kill gays uh, minor, uh, minority so it's challenging it's a challenging moment so we, we, we really need to be aware what what's going to happen after Sunday election. What do you think could happen if Bolsonaro doesn't accept the results? We could have violence on the streets, so we have quite a few problems because his supporters, they have guns. The police, part of the police support Bolsonaro and part of the army supports Bolsonaro. Brazil had a, quite a few coups back in, the last one was in 1964, and that was supported by the military people. So we don't know how they are going to act after this election. They could support him trying to not allow Lula to take place, start, you know, chasing the opposition, try to top you know, the press telling the truth. So that's something that is on the radar of the opposition. So that's why we have a lot of people supporting Lula. It's not because they really like Lula, but they know Lula is um, a Democrat. He never, you know, raised his voice against election or, you know, free speech or anything like that. That's the opposite of what Bolsonaro did along his entire life. Brazil only returned to democracy in 1985. You told me your family experienced the dictatorship. What have they told you it was like? Oh, it was um, a really tough period, you know. You, you couldn't go against the military people at the, at the moment. Uh, my grandfather, he had to hide himself, died in a suspicious, you know, way. We know a lot of people that had to, to leave the country and leave overseas, and it was not safe to go against you couldn't express yourself. That, that's horrible and it was really uh, a challenging people, uh, period for everyone. What do you think is going to happen? I think that it's going to be like some people on the streets trying to support Bolsonaro, uh, but it's going to depend how the police and the military people, they are going to uh, respond to that. You know, we, we really don't know what's going to happen. People are the yeah, press. They're putting a lot of new notice telling that they are not going to accept the military. There was a pool that was just released today, and Lula uh, is with 50% of the votes, so he might win on the first. In Brazil, we have the first round, and if someone achieves 50% plus one vote, he's elected. If not, the first and the second most voted are going to support a second turn. So hopefully this Sunday. And then if King narrowed the chance of Bolsonaro doing something on the next week. That was Brazilian New Zealander Pedro Melo talking about the upcoming Brazilian presidential election. It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. Thousands participated in climate strikes around the country last week, organised by the youth-led movement Fridays for Future. 95 BFM News reporter Jack Horsnell spoke to some of the activists gathered at Tamaki Makoto's Aotea Square about why they were protesting. What's brought you down here today? The climate is Tyrannosaurus Rex. And uh, obviously you are dressed as a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, what's the meaning behind that? Um, because I want them to stop burning my grandma. I have a sign. And what kind of things do you want to see from the government in the future to um, 
improve the climate? I want to see more funding for renewable energy, removing fossil fuel subsidies, and um, creating a circular economy. What's brought you down here today? Because we hate the rising climate and old people need to like be nice to us and not let us die so young. So what brings you down here today? Um, well, I love like, I'm very, really passionate about like the climate action. So, and also like the government started funding for the restructuring of Fonterra, which is fucked. Um, and also that just made me really angry. So yeah, here I am. What brings you guys down here today? Well, uh, one thing I've been thinking about lately is uh, our generation and our parents' generation, like the people living on planet today, we're not gonna be looked well upon like in 50 years time, 100 years time. So I think, you know, when it comes to having children and, and grandchildren, I don't think a lot of people are gonna be able to look their children and grandchildren in the eye and say that they did enough and they're on the right side of history. And um, what kind of actions do you guys wanna see the government take to improve the climate? Well, first off, like dairy needs to stop 50% of emissions like there's all this talk about like Jacinda Ardern saying like this is our nuclear moment like it's a climate emergency but it's all talk it's actually nothing like 50% of our emissions are from agriculture we're talking about electric cars and transport farming needs to stop that's the single biggest driver of climate change and also I also think individual action I want people to know that the single biggest action they can take Stop eating meat, eat your veggies. Eating your veggies is very good for you as well, so you should do it anyway. Um, I'd, like, I'd like to see a bit more action on uh, building, building bike lanes. Uh, one on the Harbour Bridge would be quite nice, uh, personally. Um, we, just need, we just need more action in every single aspect. Um, there's just not enough done, yeah. Um, um, Michael Morris. Obviously, you're an Auckland mayoral candidate. Yep. Why do you think it's important for Auckland to be taking action on climate change now? Well, it's important for the whole world, not just Auckland, but um, Auckland has declared a climate emergency, and it's an emergency, not just a crisis, so that's next level. Um, we really need to do something now. As a city, we can do a lot because, like, transport, uh, diet, um, education, uh, culture, news, Auckland cities are in charge of all those. And it's not just climate, it's the whole environment. So stormwater, biodiversity, um, saving trees. Yeah. What has brought all of these people down here this afternoon? So the, the common theme with everybody who's here is that we have real concerns about what's going on with our climate. Uh, we're all calling for climate justice and the display of the amount of people that are here today is a, sends a really clear signal to uh, our Minister of Oceans and Fisheries, to our government around, we want to see uh, the, the protection that reflects the um, statement from our government of us declaring a climate emergency. Our government has not signed up to 30% protection for our oceans by 2030. We hear within Auckland and with the Hauraki Gulf on our doorstep that's an ecological collapse. We're still seeing dredging, trawling, trawling and Danish seining in a marine park. So there is a lot of work to do. We need to start acting with much more urgency and we need to keep, keep the pressure on our government so, um, so that we see the changes that need to be made. One way that people can help, I think it's really important that people have a way that they can actually do something after today's hikui. There is a petition to end 
uh, bottom trawling, Danish sailing and dredging in the Hauraki Gulf. Please go to the Forest and Birds social media, click on the petition and sign it. Um, let's get it completely banned. It should not be a part of the new fisheries plan. So what brings you down here today? Um, we're in a climate emergency and we need to take action now. Just want to spread awareness and let people know that this is actually really serious. Yeah, just like everyone doing their own part. Um, if we speak up, we're closer to saving the climate. And obviously you're drawing stuff with chalk right now. Can you give me a bit of an explanation as to what you're drawing at the moment? Um, my drawing is of the earth that says love your mother because earth is our mother. We need to take care of her. She gives us everything and we need to give that same energy back. We drew the Lorax, which is also on our sign over there. Just I speak for the trees and just against deforestation. Yeah, and the Lorax also said, wait, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better, it's not. Um, yeah, the Lorax just says, I speak for the trees, because that's the whole one of the messages from the movie. Hey, um, I'm Sarah, uh, she, her, I'm an Anglican priest. And um, I guess since you, know, you are a priest, why is it important for people who are religious to come down here and uh, support climate action? Yeah, we... Um, Historically, haven't done it enough. I think actually that we've used the Bible in the past as a means to kind of pillage the earth and subdue it. Um, and actually we need to look back and think, no, what's our original calling? And that's actually to co-create uh, with God, I believe, um, and to work towards total reconciliation of all things. Uh, and that's, that's climate action, right? Uh, it's, I believe it's part of the gospel. Lucy May, Goff Robertson, and you're obviously the organiser of the event. Yeah, me and Hassini, um, she's a bit shy, but yeah. Um, we started the Fridays for Future group because there was no Auckland Fridays for Future group and we wanted to join. We saw there was a global strike happening a couple of times this year, so we thought we'll just start it, we'll just get it going because there wasn't anything happening. And what's the importance of doing things like this in Auckland? Well, we've got to big up this movement. The climate change is just like the biggest thing we've ever had to deal with in our, you know, all of humanity. So we're just trying to do our best to like, you know, save our race, you know, like, so we don't all die out. I'm also part of Extinction Rebellion, which is, that's, that's what they're all about too. So, you know, we're trying to survive here. And what kind of action do you want to see taken to fix uh, the climate crisis? Well, we need to reduce all emissions, like we need to take it really seriously, not aim for 2030, we need to be aiming for 2025, we need to be like reducing emissions to zero, we need to be really taking it seriously and not just, you know, bullshit like what they're doing with a bit of greenwashing and, you know. Yeah, the, government, the government could sign up to the um, number of countries that are adding ecocide to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court and our government's not done that yet, and the, um, that effort started out with Vanuatu and Samoa, so we should be backing this. Um, people who are most affected first, we've got to, you know, we're calling for reparations for these people, like, this is happening now, there are already islands underwater right now, like, it's, it's like, we need to act now, we're calling for action, actual action right now, not whatever they're doing, it's just, yeah, we're very frustrated and angry. <laughs> That was Jack Horsnell speaking to climate protesters in Tamaki Makoto. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. Liar. Aotearoa's education system has been consistently criticised recently for taking a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to accommodating for neurodivergent students. 
Students dealing with dyslexia, autism and ADHD, amongst other conditions, have been struggling under the current numeracy and literacy standards that don't work with their forms of thinking. Activists have recently been highlighting the negative effects that this can have on students long term, seeing aspects of their mental health diminished and rates of anxiety and depression heightened. To learn more, I spoke to Anton Ashcroft from Divergent Thinking and said about what needs to be changed. He first detailed what neurodiverse students are currently going through in schools. It's the idea that everybody works well in a team, everybody works well um, with homework, everyone works well at the same time of day. The idea that uh, one hat size fits everybody. And the reality is that for a lot of people, the, the traditional academic way of uh, assessing achievement and assessing ability doesn't work for different brain profiles. Has the effects of COVID-19 played a role in students feeling unsupported in schools right now? I think it's had a different impact on different brains. For some people, they've really enjoyed being able to uh, stay at home and being able to work from home and felt more flexibility and more autonomy. For other people, they've absolutely hated it because they are much more sociable and want to be with their friends. So it's been different for different people, but it's definitely had an impact overall, yes. What are the details of the way that people are struggling? Is it specifically struggles with tests or more so just the school environment in general? It's, it's both. Um, if you've got someone with undiagnosed dyslexia, they may be judged or labelled in an unhelpful way. If you've got someone with undiagnosed ADHD, they may be seen as a problematic or a difficult student. And actually all the, they're saying with their behavior is that um, they're not being stretched in a way that works with their brain. They need to be uh, given lots of deadlines. They need to be given things that are of interest to them. And the traditional system doesn't play to people's strengths. It just assumes you've got to learn everything in exactly the same way. What sort of measures do you think could be imposed to see neurodiverse students more supported in schools? I think an enormous thing would be to help a lot of teachers who don't yet understand the implications of neurodiversity to get to receive some training and support. I think also in schools it would be incredibly helpful to think about a tailored approach, but when you have a class of 30-odd children and one teacher, it's really hard to offer diversity of learning opportunities. It's not impossible, but more staffing, more support of neurodiverse in classes, for example, Having a quiet space where people who have autism, who are feeling overstimulated, can go to feel safe. Not having to mix and match different chairs for people with autism. They can stay in a familiar place, in a familiar chair. Not having to necessarily work with other people when other people um, don't work well with you. And then you're blamed because the whole team doesn't perform well. So there's lots of things that could be changed. Allowing more flexible working opportunities in terms of homework when and how people do things, how they ex express their success. Some people are very good at writing and reading. Some people uh, are much better at all rating. So there's an awful lot of things that we could do as a society to change um, and support and maximize the strengths of people's differing brains. But it would take a massive overhaul of the educational system in order to get there. How can we make sure that everyone's different levels of education are measured to be at the right standard if people have different levels of ways that their brain works. It's having a greater understanding of what to expect and um, a differential uh, approach to assessment. So, for example, if someone's got ADHD, then stereotypically they may perform much better with kinesthetic or physical exercises. Um, so be able to assess them based on their strengths. 
if someone is um, has an autistic uh, type of brain style, then they may be more academically orientated, more um, stronger on learning things, uh, and they would perform well in tests. So the standard approaches might work well for them, but not in a, a noisy environment, for example, or not when they are put under a lot of time pressure, because time pressure can be a quite anxiety-provoking for some brain styles. So, you know, just doing a test where there isn't a, a, dead, a, a time limit for some brains can be incredibly helpful. Big barrier for schools and teachers to implement these sorts of supports for neurodiverse students is not having the right amount of funding to do so. Do you think that it's worth it for the government to bring in more amounts of state funding for this kind of support to be brought in to make sure that there are education sessions available for teachers to know how to support these students or to provide more different avenues for neurodiverse students to learn? I would, yes, fully support that. I think it would make a huge difference. I'm working with adults who have been told for years that they're lazy or stupid and actually they've got ADHD and just like their brains find it hard to get into action and their brains procrastinate because they've got so many ideas they don't know where to start. And one of the biggest things that I do when I'm working with people is that for them to get that sense of relief, I'm not dumb, I'm not stupid, I'm actually really clever, but I've got so many ideas that I just need to start working with my brain to find a way of um, putting my thoughts into, into a way that I can express it well. So yeah, absolutely, I would support the idea of extra funding so people can be supported at a much earlier stage in their academic career play to their strengths and understand their brain wiring such that they don't end up with these unhelpful labels. A lot of spaces overseas have specific tailored schools for these sorts of students that learn in different ways, such as library schools and charter schools. This isn't necessarily a big thing in New Zealand right now. Do you think that this is something that education providers could take a look at in the future to help these students feel supported? I'm not sure that differentiating people in that way is helpful. We need to work in an integrated way. So we, we can uh, play to people's individual differences, but it's the collective differences and understanding and appreciating those that can be incredibly helpful. I work with um, teams in business, and very often they're not making the most of neurodiversity in their teams because they're not able to understand the differences. If we made people go to separate schoolings for different brain types, we'd actually be reinforcing those differences rather than helping each other thrive and make the most of each other's difference. What are some of the long-term effects that neurodiverse students can deal with if they struggle in these schools? They can deal with negative labels. They can deal with um, uh, an internal strong, uh, strong internal critic as a result. They can end up with anxiety and depression, helplessness and hopelessness. Um, suicidal ideation, um, it can be really quite significant when you're being told consistently that you're a problem or a troublemaker or stupid or lazy. All of these, these um, labels can have quite significant traumatic effects for people. In different parts of the world, the value of neurodiverse brains is starting to come to the fore and more and more organizations are now starting to actively recruit for brain differences. But in order for those brain differences that play to their strengths and understand their strengths, I think it's really important that in the academic system that we help people understand what they need and how their brains work and how to work with their brains as early as possible. That was Anton Ashcroft from Divergent Thinking NZ discussing the impact that the current NCES school system has on neurodiverse students. We'll be back after this break.
Leisha dropped a huge Spark session set at Working Late. If you missed it, or if you just want to hear it again, then you're in luck. Our mates over at Spark have recorded the whole thing and will be broadcasting the highlights this Friday on 95BFM Drive. It's not every day you get a second chance at a good time. Leisure, live at Working Late, this Friday at 5 on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Working Late and Spark. For the best in hip, you gotta keep it green. The Vape supplies, hemp oil, and butter, drug tasting, I brother. For the best in hemp, you gotta keep it green. The hemp store on K Road is what you need. Experience the hemp store at 253 Karanga Happy Road. For nationwide delivery, visit hempstore.co.nz or call 0800 Hemp Store. For the best in hemp, you gotta keep it green. The hemp store on K Road is what you need. Critias, you are wise. Tell me, what is Italo Disco? Surely, Socrates, it is disco-inspired music from Italy. The name proclaims it. But what of Sally Shapiro and her throwback Italo sound? Then, Socrates, it's music which draws inspiration from an idiomatically Italian interpretation of disco with synthesizers and slower tempos. Critias, a problem remains here too. Socrates, it makes you sound like a huge wanker. Embiggen your mind with Plato's Retreat on 95BFM with your hosts, Sam, Chris, Anika and Rob. Four to seven every Saturday, thanks to Halitau. The first Haas Tokoweka Kiwi chick of the 2022-23 season is hatched. The notoriously shy and tough birds live in the rainy and wet southwestland region. While the adult chick has, ve- while the adult kiwi has a very long life expectancy, the Department of Conservation has two breeding programs for the chicks. I spoke to Doc Diversity Doc Biodiversity Supervisor Paulina Stuckey about the Haas Tokoweka Kiwi and its breeding programs. Can you tell me a bit about the Haas Tokoweka kiwi? Yeah, the uh, Haas Tokoweka, they're one of the um, five main kiwi species, so the Tokoweka species. They're, we have um, three subspecies from that one, so that's they're subdivided. So with the Tokoweka, the other two ones, they're the Rakiura or Stewart Island, and then we have the Fjordland Tokoweka, which is now divided into northern and southern and we have um, our very own uh, Hastokweka kiwi. They, they live here in Southwestland. And so we're kind of bordering Fieldland National Park, Mount Aspiring National Park. And um, these birds, they, it's quite interesting because they live in, you know, we have lowland coastal forest, which is swampy and boggy and dense. And then they spread out all throughout the forest up to the alpine in the scrub and snow. Um, so they're very sturdy, very, very hardy birds. Unlike the other Tokoyaka species, which they, you, you probably know, say the Rakioro one, they live in family groups, which is quite often why if you go tramping on Rakioro's to island, you, you see them hanging around. Whereas um, Tokoyaka, they don't seem to spend so much time in large family groups. They pair up, then they'll have an egg or a chick, and quite often the chick will leave the nest um, quite young, maybe as early as 30 days old or even earlier sometimes. They're quite shy and uh, cryptic so that makes our job a little bit harder because uh, they don't they don't like being seen or encountered uh the way we monitor them is we attach little radio transmitters to their legs and find them and see what they're up to they're a bit more aloof than traditional kiwis i suppose you could say and they only really pair off so it must be quite hard tracking them down and putting radio transmitters on them 
Yeah, yeah, they're a bit, a bit notorious for us, but which I think is actually quite good for them because you kind of prefer that they don't come out and hang out because uh, I guess that's better for them. So for us, whenever we're recruiting uh, or looking for birds for the population, you know, we would do that with night searches. So we would camp out for the night and we would play kiwi calls in pitch black and trying to find them. Sometimes uh, we get help from uh, specially trained conservation dogs, which we have very highly skilled dog handlers from the dog teams. And they can, with dogs, they can also manage to, the dog would sniff out and point, and then our rangers would attempt to find find the kiwi, but dogs are quite good at that. But they spend a lot of years in training. You mentioned that they're quite hardy birds. That's quite a good quality about them. What, what makes them so tough and sturdy by hardy i mean mainly two things i think one is it's just fascinating the conditions they live in because southwestland i don't know if anyone's been here or fjordland it rains there's storms uh, there's alpine conditions it's it's hard place to live these birds they they manage it and the other thing is that they're very long-lived which is actually kind of key for the whole uh, management program, for the kiwi management program. All kiwi species are long-lived. Um, these, the hostile quaker, we think they can live up to about maybe 65 years. So this means that as long as we achieve, if we can protect the survival of the adults, then that means that, you know, that adult, the hostile quaker, for example, they start breeding at about age four. So, you know, you could if you manage to protect the adults and ensure that they survive, the main risk here is risk from predation. They will be able to have maybe, you know, um, 40 years of during which they could produce offspring and breed. So you know, a lot of programs we do, you know, we monitor the chicks and I guess this is the sort of thing here. You know, the chicks are cute and fluffy and they get a lot of attention. And it's always great to recruit more chicks. But in addition, it's quite important that we also ensure that the adults survive because they're so long-lived. Past talk with good chicks do you normally get during breeding season? Uh, yeah, that's just a bit of a tricky one. So in general, uh, say last year, um, so we go, we have we have a breeding attempt and then a hatch attempt and then a survival attempt. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, several different numbers. But let's say last year, we have a rough number. So just we go with two numbers. One is the population that we monitor. Um, so, for example, last year we were monitoring 40 breeding pairs, 40 adults. This year we have a few more. We have 65. So from the last year we had, we kind of, we have about, it's a bit of a silly number. It's 0.35 eggs per adult. <laughs> it's an average. So say last year we would have had um, about 14 eggs that were laid and not all of those hatch. So say last year that would have been about nine, nine of them from the monitored population that would have hatched. And this year, say based on those predictions, we're expecting approximately 20 eggs and then approximately 14 chicks. And those are split I don't know, this is additional information because we run two programs. The main risk for um, the Hastokweka and all the other kiwi species is risk of predation um, from introduced species. Otherwise, they wouldn't really have anything that would be predating on them. So here in Southwestland, for us, this is rats and stoats. So stoats quite commonly take eggs and chicks. They can attack an adult, but that's not too common, the predators that attack adults um, are ferrets and dogs, which is more of a problem in the North Island. We are a bit more fortunate that, or more remote 
that here in South Westland our main problems are rats and stoats. So usually if a chick manages to get to over about a kilo or 1,200 grams, it's considered that a stoat wouldn't attack them. They could, they might, but in general, it's considered that that chick is relatively safe. Because of that, we have two programs that we run at the sanctuary and a lot of the other um, kiwi management programs, they run the same sort of thing. So we have a in-situ program, which means that we leave everything in place. So the chicks, we find the nests for the adults and then there's an egg and we monitor the timing of that egg and we go in when the chick hatches and we attach a teeny tiny little transmitter on the chick's leg and then we go in every two weeks to see how they're doing and if they're still alive. So this is the in-situ program where we don't move the birds, they stay in their own territory. This program achieves about, even though, you know, we have active and very quite large extensive predator control, about 32% of the chicks survive, which translates to about 2.5% growth of the population per year. So in addition to this, we also have, there's a national program, it's called Operation Nest Egg. And this program, so this is run not just for the house to quaker, it's for the other um, kiwi species as well. So we identify birds that are either genetically important and we want to preserve that, those genetic specifics for the species or birds that are outside of our main sanctuary or the main areas where we do have predator control because birds that are in areas where there is no predator control, only about up to 6% of those chicks will survive, which is not enough to maintain um, a stable population. So those birds we go in, uh, usually for us, they're in very, very remote places. We would have to fly in with a helicopter and locate a nest and an egg, and then that egg gets um, taken to our incubation facilities partners for us with the Hasto Quaker and the Roi Kiwi. So the eggs go all the way to Willowbank, where... Our lovely partners incubate those eggs and they hatch them. And after about a month, those chicks go to what we call crash sites, which can be either on the mainland or on islands where it's very stringently monitored predator control safe places for the little birds safely grow to about a kilo or 1,200 grams where they can come back to the sanctuary and rejoin the population. Um, from those birds, the ones in the Operation Nest Egg, about 67% of them survive, which adds to about 7% growth uh, for the population. So cumulatively, if you add the in-situ program and the Operation Nest Egg, you have about 3.2% growth, which means, like, let's say if we have 500 birds, 500 half to quicker, that would translate, say, to recruiting 16 new birds per year. And because those birds are long-lived, with given our models, it's considered that this would contribute to a stable, well, not just stable, uh, but a growing population. And the national target is 2% growth. So we're a bit happy that we're, for now, achieving a sort of 3, 3.2% growth. You mentioned before that the numbers were about 200 when you first started, and now they're around 515. Is that is that correct? The Hasta Quaker Sanctuary was established in 2001 and with an estimated population between two and 300. We always, biology, ecology, you can only produce um, species models. We estimate them because we can't physically go and find every bird. <laughs> and before that, um, you know, the population was been monitored. And today, yeah, our estimate, again, is around 550 birds. That was Paulina Stuckey talking about breeding programs of the Haast Tokoweka Kiwis.
Classic journal question as well. Can I have a jaw? The wire. A major research project has recently concluded investigating the urban transformation of Ōtutahi Christchurch. Made with the support of arts organisation Life in Vacant Spaces, the project has reflected on the arts events and creative spaces that were formed at the outset of the earthquakes. The research also detailed the positive mental health effects of the installations and events, as well as some positive ecological impacts. I spoke to Messi University research fellow and lead researcher Kelly Dombrowski, first asking her to run through the research titled Huritinga, 10 Years of Transformational Placemaking. So um, I worked with an organisation called Life in Vacant Spaces, uh, who are a community organisation, a charitable trust that works behind the scenes, um, matching up kind of cool urban projects with landowners that had vacant lots. Or, or even vacant buildings. So after the earthquake, there was just, you know, 80% of the central city was um, demolished and there was just heaps of gravel pits everywhere. And so Life in Vacant Spaces does the sort of behind-the-scenes legal work of matching up um, creatives, entrepreneurs and educational projects with um, spaces that they can use. So our research project partnered with them and we got them to select um, about 35 different projects out of 700 that they'd enabled and then we went and talked to well we tried to talk to all those people but we ended up doing interviews with 13 and then doing archival research for 14 of those. How did the earthquakes initially affect the community of Christchurch? Well first disclosure I didn't live here then so I can't speak from personal experience Um, but I think from the perspective of life and vacant spaces and the research we've been doing it really just reduced the amount of that um, particularly young people but all people could gather together and um, whatever the things you do when you gather together, you know, eat out, meet your friends, um, go to the library, go to the museum, all of those kinds of things were not available for quite some time. So these groups are really about trying to bring some life uh, back into those vacant spaces in the city to create events that people might want to go to. Um, There were sort of community soup events where everyone brought along $5 and a soup was served and then people could pitch their great idea and then all of the money raised from that would go to that person on the night, for example. So not they're not like entertainment events, they were really community events that brought people together. Yeah. How did the approach to rebuilding Christchurch develop over the past 10 years? So over the last 10 years, it's moved away from just filling in the spaces with cool and fun and free events to kind of um, helping people set up new businesses and new organisations and it's moved away from um, transitional in the sense of transitioning from earthquake to sort of rebuild Um, and those organisations have have moved away from just being transitional partners to sort of being ongoing urban development partners or or urban um, transformation partners. That's the main shift that we've seen. And so people are really, so some of those transitional spaces are, are not outside anymore. They're, they're in uh, vacant buildings and they might be doing things that are um, less about bringing the community together um, to overcome a, a sort of joint trauma and more about creating ongoing um, enterprises or art projects or creative spaces that will go on into the future. What sort of effects has all of these installations, creative spaces, art installations, all of these things had on the Christchurch public after such a traumatising and large event? That's a great question. 
question. We didn't interview just the general public, but it was really interesting when we interviewed people about the specific projects they were involved in. They often reflected on other people's projects that they had enjoyed. And so the one that kept coming up for people was the Temple for Christchurch, which was an incredible event where an artist built um, a sort of visual representation of the Richter scale, not really curves, they're like sharp, <laughs> sharp, jagged kind of mountain looking thing out of wood. And then people could come up and write messages on it about their frustrations of the earthquake or their hopes and dreams. And then it was actually burned in this massive bonfire. And it was so interesting to hear people talk about the sort of cathartic effect that had. And it seems kind of like, well, what kind of art project is that, that you just burn it up? But the whole performance of that um, was something that people reflected back on as being really meaningful. And I think a lot of the projects were like that. There was another one that was an art chemist where people could come along and have an appointment with the, the art chemist and the chemist would talk to them about what was going on in their lives and then would prescribe um, a piece of art for them to go and look at. That could be like a performance art piece or it could be something in the um, gallery. It could be an out-in-the-street um, urban piece of art. And so there was a lot of a lot of kind of installations and events that were about helping people um, connect with how they were feeling about things and connect with each other and kind of recover the sort of sense of well-being that might have been missing for some time. So those ones were really interesting to me. Is the project likely to see more urban spaces that have been turned into these creative spaces continue after the reparations and rebuilding of the earthquakes has finished? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a real shift um, from just filling up those vacant spaces where buildings are, um, you know, are waiting to be rebuilt into sort of, uh, I mean, they're still 30-day rolling leases, but into sort of more long-term projects. So, for example, urban farms, um, that have been going for one's been going for seven years, and then that site's being rolled over to another urban farm, um, and then the kinds of ones that are mainly taking up the time of the life and vacant spaces staff are um, like the old Seven Oaks School site, which is owned by Ada, uh, which is used has heaps of different buildings, and they're all used for different things. There's a bush kindy, there's a um, twenty twenty compost doing organic waste. Um, uh, disposal and, and composting. There's three or four different artists there. There's a bookable space. Um, so those kinds of places that are multi-use and sort of more long-term are really still alive and will keep going into the future. Other ones are like the Roy Stokes Hall in New Brighton, which is a community space that the Circus Trust uses, but a lot of other community spaces are coming on board. And then there's a massive red zone area, which is all houses have been removed and it's all... Um, covered in grass and trees and old fruit trees and there's a lot of different projects there that we reviewed including um, drone racing out there, there's disc golf, there's um, there's all kinds of art projects like there's a learn to ride track uh, and that community has really um, got a whole new space there that has been managed by um, Life and Vacant Spaces and will be going back to be managed by the community. So all kinds of things still happening um, that aren't really earthquake recovery anymore, right? Kind of creating yeah. a new form of Christchurch. That's right. And it doesn't have to be just Christchurch because last week I was visiting in Timaru and some of the people who were involved in setting up these projects in Christchurch were in Timaru working with the um, with the Timaru District Council to think about how 
their city might be enlivened by these kinds of activities. I think for me what really came out of it was that this um, urban transformation is not just something that's about earthquakes. I think as we move into a time of uh, thinking about what our cities look like as we face challenges like climate change and increased disasters, I think these community organisations, not just Life in Vacant Spaces, but all of the organisations they supported, um, really have a role to play in being the creative, experimental, entrepreneurial uh, folks that work out how do we live together in a city differently, and that was what really um, stuck out to me from this research. That was Massey University Research Fellow and Lead Researcher Kelly Dombrowski chatting about the research titled Huritanga, 10 Years of Transformational Placemaking in Otatahi Christchurch. That was The Wire. Ko edite hotaka katoa motene wiki, netem hiakere koto katoa i korero meki ao motenera, and that is a wrap on the Friday wire. Thank you to those who spoke with us today: Green Party MP Jane Logie, Anton Ashcroft from Divergent Thinking NZ, and Massey University Research Fellow Kelly Dombrowski. And thank you. To- and thank you to Pedro Mello, and thank you to Doc Biodiversity Supervisor Paulina Stuckey. Also, a big thank you to everyone who spoke to BFM journalist Jack Horsnell at the Tamaki Makoto Fridays for Future protest. Neda hoki temhi kia kotoka e fakarango ana. Thank you for tuning in. If you missed anything, all of those interviews will be broadcasted on 95pfm.com. Kahoki mai moto e terewiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You are on 95BFM. a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.